This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen arrived on Capitol Hill with a blunt message. Unless lawmakers force the tech giant to change how it operates, democracy, public safety, and the mental health of young users all remain at risk. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Haugen clearly outlined concrete steps to rein in Facebook, including creating a new regulatory agency to increase oversight and to require Facebook to disclose internal research. Haugen claimed Facebook uses addictive algorithms and that the company has done secret experiments showing vulnerable users can be led to content promoting anorexia, while it also found some teen girls experience an increase in body image problems while using Instagram. Facebook has once again found itself in the political spotlight as Francis Haugen, a former data scientist and product manager with the company turned whistleblower, provided the source documents for an explosive investigative series in the Wall Street Journal, followed by an appearance before a U.S. Senate committee. The Facebook file series comes just as Canada is moving toward its own legislative response to internet concerns with an online harms consultation that provides the roadmap for future policies. The Canadian consultation has sparked widespread criticism, but recent events may only increase the urgency for legislative action. Taylor Owen is the Beaverbrook Chair in Media Ethics and Communications, the founding director of the Centre for Media Technology and Democracy, and an associate professor in the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. He is also the host of the Big Tech Podcast, a terrific podcast on digital policy. He joins me on this podcast to discuss the latest revelations and what they might mean for the future of Canadian internet regulation. Taylor, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. As you know, and you've been intimately involved, questions related to online harm, social media regulation have, of course, been with us now for a number of years, but they've been garnering even, I think, more attention in recent weeks. Uh, it feels like in Canada, there, there are at least a couple of tracks that are, are moving a little bit in parallel that I think are, are almost bound to intersect raising yeah. real questions about the future of Canadian policy. We, of course, mm. have the revelations about Facebook's internal research from Francis Haugen, mm. uh, first reported in the Wall Street Journal, 60 Minutes interview, and then, of course, the congressional hearing. And then there's the Canadian government's own work in this area. An online harms consultation took place over the summer and clear indications that legislation's forthcoming. Mm. Now, I, I want to focus on that future intersection, what the Haugen revelations yeah. are likely to mean for Canadian policy. But uh, let's start by unpacking, in a sense, both of those tracks, starting, mm. I guess, with with the Francis Haugen. For those who haven't oh. been following, you know, can you give a bit of background on, on who she is and what she's revealed? I think you framed it the right way, which is that it was a series of leaked documents. So see, she's a, um, a pro- project manager at some, at some level in the uh, in uh, this is an integrity or the integrity one of the integrity teams at facebook um and clearly had access to a large amount of the internal research that facebook to their to their great credit i think um does about the effect their platform has on their users and i think we should we should put a pin in that right that that um a lot of other platforms don't do that research um so it's actually really great 
to know it's being done and being done by um, smart, thoughtful people internally inside the company. Anyway, she had she had access to these data and and these this research, and um, it wasn't just her leak or her the moment of her testimony. Um, it was thousands of pages of documents that were um, provided to the Wall Street Journal, as you mentioned, which did. Um, five separate sort of investigative reports into different aspects of those data and that research. Um, and then of course her, her own um, testimony and her own media she's been doing. Um, and, and look, I, I think there's been a lot of different, obviously there's been a string of leaks or whistleblowers or however we wanna frame people who have worked and experienced um, the inside of some of these companies and have then stepped out to, to raise concerns publicly. Um, but I do think, and I think that there's a string of these is important. Um, we increasingly get a bigger window into what are what are often black boxes here, which is which is frankly part of the problem, which we'll talk about. Um, but she did do something very specific, I think, um, and and that is confirm to a certain degree um, some of the harms that people from outside, and I would I would put that category quite broadly to be certainly researchers who attempt to study these platforms, um, but also civil society groups who have been documenting harms to their constituencies and in their areas of domain for years and years now, both domestically and, and more importantly, perhaps internationally, um, and also investigative journalists. So we've had these kind of three outside lenses looking in at these platforms for going on a decade now, at times, raising awareness of harms they've seen. And those almost uniformly have been denied by the platforms themselves, that these harms exist. And what I think Francis has done, which is, is powerful, is say there is knowledge of these harms, that we too study these internally with access to far greater data than anyone from outside. And we see some of these harms as well. Um, and in addition to that, we often make strategic choices between minimizing harm and maximizing um, the core of our business, or at least acknowledge that there's a tension between those two things, between harm, minimizing harm and profit. And we don't always know where they land on that. I think it's very clear that very often they land on minimizing harm, at least in the case of Facebook. Um, but there's now an acknowledgement of that tension from inside. And I think that's important because really it is at the core of a lot of the policy um, ideas I think we should be putting on the table. Yeah, that's interesting. So so Haugen now has, has placed all of this. She's obviously got a lot of attention. What is she suggesting needs to be done in her view yeah. to try to address some of these issues? And, and this is where I think um, from, from my perspective is um, someone like you who's sort of engaged in thinking about the, this policy direction um, and its complexity, frankly. Um, I think that perhaps that is the the the, the biggest um, sort of assistance that's been provided here to this discourse, in that, and partly she's doing this because she's speaking primarily to a U.S. government audience or legislative audience, um, but she is urging policymakers to move away from the conversation about governing speech and towards governing those incentive structures, that tension that she raised. And she's suggesting to do it 
by providing greater transparency mechanisms over how this system works so that not only internal researchers, but everybody can see the consequences of these various decisions. And on top of that, a level of accountability measures to ensure that that tension is determined in the broad public interest. So transparency and accountability measures over the system itself, rather than focusing on the symptoms or the outcome of that system, which is the acts of speech. And, and I think that's really important for a whole host of reasons we can talk about. Um, but just to flag two to, to, to direct us here. I mean, one is, as you know better, far better than me, speech is like a very, very difficult thing to adjudicate. Um, and it is different in every country and in every jurisdiction. Um, and and it, there, are, there are very few clear lines, even on speech we determine to be illegal. Um, and certainly that's the case in Canada, which we can talk about. Um, but the second is just the scale of it. And I mean, which is of course mind boggling in, in I mean, Facebook alone says they have 2.7 billion users and 100 billion pieces of content in 4,000 languages a day. So any governance conversation or solution that focuses on the, the very imprecise definition of harmful speech combined with the vast scale of speech acts that we're talking about is kind of doomed to fail. And, and that's where a lot of this policy debate has been stuck for years now. Um, and and I, I think it's, a, it's understandable we've gone there first because it's the thing we see and feel. It's the, it's the, the product of this of the system. And so that's what we see. And, and it's, some of it's awful and some of it's really damaging and really harmful. But that doesn't necessarily mean that addressing that speech is the right policy way in to minimizing it. Yeah, no, in a sense, she, she's like, she's like, she sees the problem. She sees the incentives, as, as you've suggested, for these companies. And, that, and, and the argument seems to be that the, the way that you get out the kind of harms that come out of this, the so-called symptoms, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, is to go to that underlying structure and to... Well, at least if you do that, then we'll know how many of the harms that will, how many of the speech harms that might fix, right? And then maybe it's a much smaller problem. Yeah. You may still need to, and I'm curious what you think about this, but at some point you may need to still deal with the illegal speech. That's, that's, a, that's an outcome of this system. But perhaps we can minimize it going, going first by going after some of these structural elements. Well, I think that's right. Listen, illegal speech is illegal for a reason. We're, we're already regulating it in some way. Well, okay, uh, you know, whether we can enforce it or not is the question. And it's the question. And it's yeah. also, I th and I also think, and this, this brings us nicely to what's on the table in Canada, is that mm. treating all of these kinds of speech as the same from a regulatory perspective, as, as if child pornography is the same as, as online hate. And so we're going to use the same tools, same enforcement measures, same takedown possibilities uh, for all of this kind of content, because it ticks a certain box is where you start running into real risks. In that's, terms a, that's, of, a re having... that's a really important point, I think. I mean, so, so the way they run this down, right, is the five different categories of illegal speech. Um, and, and I think you're right. They are in some ways fundamentally different. Um, yeah. And they offer, and they probably need to be addressed um, uh, in a more sort of targeted, bespoke way. Yeah, I think that's right. Now let, let's let's talk for a moment about 
the Canadian sure. situation. So the, the the government during the over the spring started down the road of its internet regulation approach. There was Bill C-10, uh, which listeners will be familiar with since I spent a lot of time focusing <laughs> on it, which of course involved the broadcast regulation and spilled over onto uh, user-generated content. But yeah. the, in, in some sense, the bigger piece is this online harms piece, which the government mm-hmm. about a week or two before the election call launches an online consultation that doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't really ask a lot of questions as much as it says signals, here's where we're intending to go. And I've mm-hmm. talked about it with Cynthia Ku on, on a prior yep. podcast, blog, blogged about it pretty extensively, including, mm-hmm. I should note, uh, it's, it's oh, I think, an inexplicable decision to keep the submissions it received as part of this consultation now secret. So they're not even mm-hmm. revealing them. It's only those that have been made available by the people Either who do the submitting that we have. Mm-hmm. But, but why don't we start with with your take on, on that consultation and, and what the government is thinking about, and then kind of We'll take that and bridge it to uh, Haugen's recommendation to focus on accountability and transparency. Yeah, so I think it's important, as you say, to put this in the context of other um, legislative efforts in the past year or two. Um, I would add the Privacy Act to that, um, C-11. I actually think that some of the things we're talking about here could be perhaps better addressed via that, by increasing um, the rules around data collection, if we're looking at the real incentives and structures um, of the way these systems work, um, but also the Broadcast Act, um, which uh, in my view uh, made the uh, significant mistake of drifting into the speech regulation space. Um, to me from, I mean, I don't, that's, um, I, I, don't know that policy area particularly well and don't pretend to, but it seems to me that you could have gotten at most of the concerns the broad, the, the, that were central to the Broadcast Act without touching on user-generated content and avoiding this conversation and debate about its implications on speech before we had the actual conversation about a bill that actually deals with speech, which is, of course, um, C-36 and the online harm legislation. Um, so I guess a, a few thoughts I have about that. I mean, look, I think the, the most of the critiques that I've heard come out are really important and correct. And I think a lot of those critiques and concerns um, were provided in the buildup to the writing of this legislation and heard by the government. So why did they choose not to not to listen to them? <laughs> like that to me is, is, a, is a core question here. Like when you think of the broad stakeholders who are involved in this kind of legislation that touches on so many aspects of um, civil society, um, um, the legal community, the digital governance community, um, why that consultation, the consultation that was done, um, wasn't internalized more effectively, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Um, so so that, that's one thing. Um, on the piece of legislation itself, I mean, look, I think there, I have, I think that they made three, I think there's three things that are problematic from my perspective. Um, one is the 24-hour takedown regime. Um, I think it's pretty clear uh, that there have been real 
consequences to those that kind of regime when imposed in Germany, for example. We now know a fair amount about both how platforms reacted in response um, and what the consequence of that reaction was on over-censoring certain kinds of content. So I think I think they made a mistake going down that path. And, and I I my sense is they did that because it was in their mandate letter, which to me is a, is not a very good reason to um, to impose a policy that many people have warned um, uh, will have these sort of negative consequences, despite the intent, which I think isn't necessarily bad. Um, um, the second is the uh, IP blocking provision. Uh, I think, uh, while I understand the, the challenge of what a government does when they can't enforce their own laws on a platform. So what do you do if you if if a platform is not abiding by your either legal or regulatory regime? Um, using that tool is, as if you've argued incredibly persuasively, um, takes us down a path don't go and is a bit of a poison pill in this thing. The third challenge I think is a is um, around uh, what Cynthia Koo, uh, I think detailed really helpfully in your interview with her, but also in the memo or the consultation document she did with Lex Gill and Christopher Parsons, which is around mandatory data uh, reporting requirements um, to the RCMP and potentially new powers to CSIS um, based on that. And, and I, th I think they're right that one, this, um, incentivizes potentially over collection of data and oversharing of very sensitive data um, between platforms and the government, and also just steps out of the kind of um, domain of this particular piece of legislation and into something else that deserves more scrutiny and more, and more separate conversation, which is empowering CSIS to do more things with these kinds of data. So look, I think those three things are, from my view, problematic with this piece of legislation. Um, then what, what do we do about that, right? Because um, I actually think, and, and here's where um, I think we might disagree a little bit and other people might as well. I do think there's some core things in this legislation um, that are not in themselves uh, deal breakers if we define and empower them appropriately. Let me give you the chance then to pick up on that. What, what do you yeah. see as some of the positive things as part of this consultation? Well, look, I mean, I think the government was faced with a choice here, as many governments are, who want to put in some sort of more regulatory framework for, for um, platforms or internet communication um, of whether to continue to, to provide new powers to existing regulatory bodies um, in Canada. There were many people arguing that this should be the CRTC, and CRTC arguing it most, most uh, vocally, I guess. Um, eh, and I, that's kind of the direction the UK went, right? powering off common in all sorts of different ways um, to move into the digital space. And I think they correctly said, no, this, is, this space is fundamentally different. Um, therefore, we, um, we are a new regulatory body for these, these sorts of questions. And they proposed this digital safety commissioner. Um, so I, th I think in principle, that was the right decision. Now the question is, 
what should this digital safety commissioner do? Which how should they be empowered by legislation? Um, that's something we should talk about. Um, I also think the idea of a recourse council, which is the second piece of this regulatory architecture they've proposed, isn't in and of itself a bad idea. Um, scholars around the world have been proposing what they something like an e-tribunal, right? So some kind of recourse mechanism for citizens of democratic societies to challenge the decisions over their speech made by companies sitting outside of their of their countries. Now I think there's a debate about what that should be, right? Should that be something like a literal complaint mechanism and almost sort of trial-like or, or tribunal-like process for individual decisions? Or should it be something more like the oversight board, Facebook's oversight board, that provides kind of general comment and guidance to set precedent on these companies? And, and I think we can debate how that could be made up. But the idea that we would have a kind of third party adjudicating group that sits outside of the companies, um, to me, isn't crazy in a, in a democratic society. Um, and not just absolving all those decisions to, to private entities. And the third is piece of that structure is this advisory board. They're calling the advisory board. Many people have argued for a social media council. Article 19 has called, for example, for a global social media council. This would be sort of a Canadian version of it, which is sort of a, a group of um, stakeholders, essentially, industry, academic, civil society, um, who have played some role in guiding and advising the regulatory body. It's like, on the surface, three things I, I can see the argument and I think very useful. The question is what you empower them to do. And, and that's where we get into sort of the details here that I think um, can be challenging and uh, where the government's gotten a, in a bit of uh, a few problems by being both vague and too vague and too specific at the same time in different ways. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting take where it sounds like you're 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 comfortable with with the direction that they're moving from a governance structure perspective. That the argument being that our current structures may not be well suited to deal with this, or we would do better with some new ones that are that are well situated to deal with the the kinds of issues that that we've been talking about around online harms and the like. But the the very sorts of powers or solutions that they're proposing that might be injected into the system uh, give real pause and are yeah, and in I some instances cause for concern. Absolutely. And one thing, just to, one additional point there I think is really important is those, that structure, those three pieces um, are not, don't, don't come out of thin air. These are things that are being discussed or tried in other jurisdictions around the world. So there's been a lot of critique about this Canadian piece of legislation, I think rightfully being way out ahead and picking bad ideas from around the world and, and imposing um, fairly draconian um, measures on speech. And I, I think, honestly, I think some of that critique has been, been valid. Um, but those three pieces of government, these three governance tools are pulled from, in some ways, practice internationally. Um, and I do think the government did look and talk to other governments about what was working, what, was, what, what wasn't. Um, and there have been a lot that a lot of those ideas come from things that are being pushed in the US, things that are being pushed in the EU, the be better parts of the DSA, for example, like what's worked in other countries. So, so like that structure itself is, to me, uh, potentially a, a good path here. Um, the question is what they do.
Yeah, now speaking of that that global perspective, and you're right that you know so many of the proposals are at least in part taken from the experience elsewhere. You've mentioned both for the good, let's say in the the case of 24-hour takedowns, or perhaps mm. uh, better in terms of some of the attempts to try to develop some of the governance structures. One of the the concerns that we've seen. Uh, raised from groups both within Canada and elsewhere is what this might mean from a reputational perspective for Canada, especially with respect to the speech regulation piece, yeah. where Canada often likes to see itself, you know, as a, as a leader in this regard, and the concern that somehow if we move forward with with this without necessarily the sorts of due process that we'd expect, the sorts of safeguards that we'd expect, and I said making the case that, you know, as between online harms and freedom of expression, we're going to take regulating online harms, even if there's a real cost to freedom of expression, that yeah. in the hands of autocratic regimes and some of other countries, they may hold up Canada to justify their approaches. And in some ways, we can become a, a poster child for some, some really bad stuff that could happen elsewhere. You have any thoughts on on what this could mean from a, a reputational perspective? How do we how do we grapple with with uh, with our role sort of in the global community when yeah. it comes to these issues? Look, I, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, a, a reflection on that challenge here, and then also specific what I think the opportunity rather than damage that could come from this reputationally. Um, but I do think there's a, even a real challenge in this um, policy space. In what way will domestic laws um, be interpreted that in our case would be developed democratically, I mean, a democratic society? Um, could they be um, used rhetorically or mimicked in ways that could be used in, in a liberal ends in other countries. I think it's one dynamic here. Uh, and that is not a, that's not a, a problem that's necessarily unique um, to this policy space. That's it's very often the case in all sorts of policy domains um, that are replicated for liberal ends in other, in other contexts. Um, but I think there's a bigger issue here and I, I had a, a wonderful conversation um, on my podcast with uh, Jamil Jaffer, um, I'm sure you know well, um, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for in this, in this debate. And, and I asked him whether we in democratic societies that aren't the United States, um, in Western Europe, so Canada, um, who have different speech laws and regulations than the United States, we don't have a First Amendment, we we protect um, the right to not be harmed alongside the right to speech in, way, in, in ways that, that, that aren't sort of balanced quite the same way in the United States. But in the interest of protecting the speech rights of people in a liberal regime, should we accept a change in our own? So should we be okay with accepting more of a free speech oriented, First Amendment oriented version of free speech in our society in order to protect individuals in other countries, in the liberal regimes, who's, where the, that First Amendment vision being, in, being um, that, they, that they are able to take advantage of using these platforms is far preferable than the liberal one from their own regimes. 
and I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I think that's a really wicked problem at the center of this. Um, and it's one thing to make that decision in Canada, where we sit fairly closely already to American free speech norms and laws. But what if I'm a German citizen and I've decided as a society, as a democratic society, that Nazi hate speech will be illegal? And we are going willing to go to great lengths to ensure it doesn't repropagate in my society. Should I make that same trade-off? And, and I, I don't have a good answer for that. So, so that's on the that's just the these issues, these global versus domestic jurisdictions issues, I think are really complicated and get at some of the real almost moral dilemmas that are at the heart of a lot of these policy debates. On the reputational damage, though, just really quickly, I actually think it's the, yes, if we go down the current path, I do think there will be reputational damage. I think there already has been um, because we, this policy space is new and rapidly evolving and, and difficult. And that, what that demands of democratic governments, I think, is to learn from the experiences of others because not everyone will get everything right in such a complex policy area every time. So when we see Germany try something, in this case, the 24-hour takedown regime, and we see potentially negative consequences to that, we should learn from it and iterate on it. And I think the way this legislation is currently packaged does not do that sufficiently. However, the inverse is also true, that I do think there is some consensus emerging internationally amongst the various, both pretty diverse stakeholder groups who are interested in this topic, um, but also the governments that are, that are trying to implement legislation in this space. That there are some things one can do in both the transparency space and the accountability space that are almost the low-hanging fruit of this, but could make a real difference. And would, I think, garner fairly broad buy-in from these various stakeholders. And if the government were to empower this regulatory regime, um, which we can debate whether that's the right structure or not, and I think that's a legitimate conversation, um, but if this thing, this package of regulatory tool bodies were to exist, or governance structure were to exist, if we empowered it to ensure that we were getting significantly more data out of these companies so that we could all, the public citizens, researchers, and governments, hold them to better account, um, if, we are providing better windows in some of the algorithmic systems um, that we know are shaping in important ways, both good and bad, our experiences online. If we had some mechanisms to hold companies accountable for, thing, for things that we deem to be fundamentally harmful, um, those things um, could actually, I think, demonstrate to the world that we're learning from what's happening internationally and we're building what at the moment, because again, this is a process that countries have to iterate on, um, that at the moment um, should, be, should, be, uh, should be seen as being at the front edge of where this policy conversation is. And that could be a reputational benefit. We could be seen as sort of a governance leader in this um, rather than a laggard. So there's an opportunity here uh, to, to kind of flip, flip the script a little bit. If, you know, if we move in a direction that shifts away from some of the things that have been put on the table to date and instead learn the lessons that uh, Francis Haugen's been talking about. Now you're talking about uh, focus not on the symptoms, but on the, the broader structures and uh, the way forward. Is includes transparency, accountability, and, a, and I think you, you notably raised as well earlier on um, 
Bill C-11 and the, the data piece of this as well uh, as, a, as an important part of that overall package of, of potential reforms that could go a long way to addressing some of these concerns? I think it'll have to, re- to, to re- it will demand, I think, a revisiting of, of C-11. Um, I think that's, that's certainly part of it. And it may even require um, a discussion of competition policy in Canada and the, the, the current salience of the Competition Act. So I think there's many ways we can get into this, but even just in this online harms piece, um, I think there's a potential refocusing here um, that that uh, that could, I think, have an impact on both how we govern the space, um, but also the direction other other democratic societies are going. Okay. I think well, I, I I agree with you. I think there are opportunities. The question will be whether or not there is a willingness on the government to set aside the direction that it's been yeah. moving in the past. And, you know, you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that it's at, at a certain level, it's tough to reconcile a government that talks about consultation and that is clearly wants to be actively engaged in this. And yet groups from across the political spectrum had raised these concerns and yet the government marched on. They did the same thing with respect to C-10. Mm. Uh, and so I guess the question is, uh, will, you know, will, the, will the, the election and the chance for a bit of a reset also involve a bit of a reset on these policies as well? I mean, boy, I wish I knew the answer to that because um, I, yeah, I don't know either. But I, mean, I do think there's an interesting question here of what does a reset look like? Um, is this a wholesale restart of, of all three of these pieces of legislation or are there things that could be evolved from each of them that would resolve some of these challenges we've been talking about? Um, and I, I think I tend to lean in the latter there um, just because these processes take um, so long. These are, this is two years of, of work that... Um, it would be, it, I don't know, I'd be hesitant to just restart um, because some of these issues are really, are really urgent, I believe. Um, but maybe, maybe that's not possible. Maybe it is a whole reset. We'll see. Well, and obviously, we're likely to get new ministers and, uh, and the government acting potentially on this, they say, within the first hundred days of, mm-hmm. of a new parliament, uh, just in the, literally in the, the weeks and months ahead. Yep. Taylor, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.